Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a joy to open the Word of God, and with it comes a lot of sleepless nights and challenges, and this is one of those sermons that is hard to preach. Um, it's challenging because our culture is pushing against the clear statements of Scripture. Thus far, we've looked at five non-negotiables of the church. Number one was a biblical understanding and commitment to the gospel. Secondly, we looked at understanding and implement and the implementation of plural male godly leadership. That is a challenge in our day because so many churches have compromised on that one issue. I believe that if we compromise on biblical authority, we will compromise on biblical leadership and everything else falls apart. Those are the two primary categories for a healthy church. We also looked at, thirdly, biblical understanding and observance of the ordinances. And then fourthly, biblical understanding and respect for the authority of God's word. The last few sermons were focused on one element, which is the biblical understanding and employment or application of membership. And so I have one more sermon, which is this one, that deals with membership specifically. And then I'm going to deal, um, secondly, with pastoral leadership as it relates to membership. So technically two more sermons on this topic of membership. We've seen the importance of doctrine and duty. It is no good for a church to say that we are committed to biblical truth, but they do not apply biblical truth. It is no good to say that I love the word, but I'm not willing to submit to the authority of God's word. Doctrine must result in duty. Doctrine must impact how you walk. It is of no use if we know the truth, but never love according to the truth. That is hypocrisy. That results in weak, unhealthy churches and compromised pulpits. Last week we saw that church discipline not only presumes membership, but it provides accountability and protection for the local church. There's a second element to that, and that's what we will look at this morning. The problem is that so many churches have become callous to the rise and the presence of sin in the community of the saints. We have turned a blind eye to unmarried cohabitation. We have turned a blind eye to infidelity. We have turned a blind eye to immorality as if it doesn't matter or impact the church in any way. This has led to the church being ill-equipped to respond to cultural pressures to accept that kind of living. Yes, 
The church is being forced to rethink its stance on marriage, on male leadership, on what authority means both in the home and in the church of Jesus Christ. You see, these elements that seems to be peripheral and on the outside of the church, for instance, male leadership in the home and GBV don't seem to affect each other, yet it does. We seem to be ignorant of the fact that what culture is saying is that what the Bible classes as masculinity, what the Bible classes as biblical leadership and authority in both the home and in the church is now considered to be, quote-unquote, toxic masculinity. So we are a problem to society. We are a problem to our families and masculinity that causes a problem in, in its um, essence in that it uh, expects a respect for the position must be removed. This world is in trouble. And so is the church of Jesus Christ. Because those external elements are starting to impact how the church sees the truth and also how the church responds to the truth. There is an element, um, I'm, I'm studying this um, as a side study to my thesis. I'm looking into it as a potential. Um, th there's an element of cultural criticism that is not only looking at the historical element of culture with regards to the Bible, but viewing the scripture through culture. And that is where we are in history. That culture has become a standard and authority, and the Bible, or how we interpret the Bible, must be viewed in the, through the lens of culture. Culture or I should say society, has elevated human rights to the position as being the only value of humanity that matters. We consider, which is connected to this, personal freedom as an expression of our innate human right of existence. I believe that the reason we struggle with divine election is because we deem human right or human freedom as the single most important quality of human existence. Think about that. The reason we think that God is infringing on my personal freedom with regards to divine election is because I view human freedom as the pinnacle of human existence. If God chooses me, he has stripped me from my what? Freedom. Sociology tells us that we are animals that needs to be free, that does their own thing, and there should be no structures that is placed upon us. Even Adam, as the the only quote-unquote person who has um, individual freedom. And I don't fully think that is the case. Why? Because he was still very much dependent upon God. 
He was not a free agent in the sense that we think of free agency. That reality of Adam being under God is still a reality today. Is it interesting or mere coincidence that the offer that Satan puts on the table is what? Your freedom. Did God really say? Did God really mean that you can't, surely he doesn't want you to be like him who's uninhibited and free to do what he wants. You know what? If you eat of that tree, guess what? You're going to be like him. The very thing we are fighting for is the very thing that Satan wants to offer us. Freedom. Biblical, healthy Churches depend upon the word of God even when it is uncomfortable and contradicts society. See, knowledge of the truth must filter down to both our convictions and conduct. I did that little bit of a side issue to show you that there is a connection between how we live in this culture, how we think in this culture, and our convictions in and regarding scripture the sad reality is that we don't make the connections we are not joining the points when we have split devotions when we allow the world to influence our thinking when we allow the world to dictate our understanding of morality our understanding of truth, our understanding of men and women, we fall prey to an invasion of immorality within the church of Jesus Christ. Somehow we've become accustomed to think that we live in two different worlds. So there's a standard for the church, but then when I get home, there's a standard for me because my, my, my home is part of society. It's part of culture. And so we have this split world worldview. That there's a standard for me in my home and there's a standard for when I am at church on Sunday. The reality is that the truth that governs you here today is the truth that governs your every moment of your waking life away from today. We think that there are two different parts to our life, the personal element and the corporate element. Think of the nation of Israel. I'll get back to this in a moment's time. But their corporate life invaded upon their personal life. Their personal life was an expression of worship because Israel had to be a community of worshipers. The entire life was predicated upon the fact that God has called them to be his worshipers. We seem to think that we can live here and hold different convictions on social matters. Politics, money, marriage, parenting, and morality. Why? Because the church, we think, relates only to our spiritual life. And I'm free to live the way that I want, 
in my personal life. That is a deceptive lie of the enemy. And that kind of thinking affects church membership. It affects healthy churches. You are accountable to the leaders of your church as well as to the members of your church in all of your life. If you are cheating on your taxes, we are, we are responsible to hold you accountable for that act. If you are living an immoral life, we are responsible to hold you accountable for that life. Too often, and I think this is the problem in the modern church, too often have we had a hands-off approach when it comes to church membership. Just, just come. Jesus accepts you just the way you are. You ever heard that? Is it true though? Can you come like you want, when you want, just the way you are? Did God have a standard of approach in the Old Testament? Yes, he did. Even those who were called to be priests, even those who were members in the greater community of the Jews, had to commit uh, and devote to God's standard. Jesus calls you as you are, but doesn't accept you as you are. God calls you as you are, but doesn't accept you as you are. Why am I making that point? Because there's only one way that God will accept you, and it is through Jesus Christ. By the righteousness that is being uh, placed upon you, the, the, the uh, um, imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Without that, God will never accept you. Every church must aim to be a healthy church. But my concern and the elders' concern in this church is not every church. It is this church. How do we measure up to God's standard of maturity? How do we measure on the scale of spiritual maturity? How are we demonstrating faithfulness to the demands of Christ for his bride? How does the truth impact us with regards to how we live beyond these doors? If we in the future want to be a church planting church, how are we going to impact the next generation of men who will be able to do that? Well, we begin by emphasizing what God requires of us as a local church. This morning we want to continue to consider membership and we will focus on the benefits of accountability as it relates to the purity of a local assembly. Healthy church membership results in healthy churches. But in order for us to have a healthy church membership, we need to understand and apply the biblical mandate of church membership. So let's give attention to the importance of and significance of church purity. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Church purity presumes and also protects its members. Thank <laughs> you. 
verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even amongst the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. Let me first make the case that church purity is not a church, a universal church requirement. It's a reality. Church purity, meaning the church as a whole and before God, is pure. That is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about the local church that must maintain purity. God is not expecting the universal church to measure up to holiness. Why? Because they are. We are, as a universal church, holy before God. In fact, as Romans chapter 8, I believe, says that we already have been justified, sanctified, and glorified. That's the reality we possess as the universal church and individual saints before God. That's positionally. But we know in reality that that is not the case because we all struggle with sin. We, all are, all, we are all growing in our sanctification. We are supposed to be pure and holy, but we struggle with purity and holiness. This is what Paul is talking about. It's the practical element of our positional state. The local church must take responsibility of its own purity in this world. Local churches must preserve the purity that God has given to the church and requires from the church because that speaks both of its spiritual health and maturity. For this reason then, a church community cannot ignore or turn a blind eye to immoral behavior. Why? Number one, personal purity matters in the greater community. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. It is actually reported, that is a very snarky comment. It is actually reported, I mean really? That there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. Personal purity matters to the greater community. Personal purity affects the greater community. It was the church's responsibility to recognize that this is a sin, but also to deal with that sin. Yet in their arrogance of tolerance, they not only put up with it, but they celebrated it. Look at, in, uh, look at verse 2. And you are arrogant? Ought you not to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. Look at verse 6. You are, your boasting is not good. They somehow thought that this was a good thing. It's sad today that churches are so quote-unquote tolerant that they have allowed immorality and impurity to enter the church with no problem.
This man's personal life mattered to the greater community. This man's personal decision to marry his father's wife, which is probably his step, uh, stepmom, um, was a problem to the greater community of the saints. His personal life was not outside the purview of the local church. Often we think that accountability, especially, especially on personal moral issues like this, is, is outside the governance of the church. Take note that Paul does not speak to the leadership of the church, but he speaks to all of them. Should you, plural you, not be mourning? And should you, that's all of you, not remove him from among you? The question is, why could he not live the way that he wanted to? Why could he not make this decision and just expect everyone to affirm it? Why could he not just make this lifestyle, his own lifestyle, and expect them just to look the other way and be pleased with his decision? See, today we, have raised, we are raised with the, the challenge that our individuality and our freedom is far more important than the community life of the church. So your individualism, your personal freedom to choose is far more important than what God requires of the community of the saints. Yet Paul breaks that perspective right here. You don't have a right to choose to live the way that you want. You are accountable to the greater community of the saints. Look down at verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven, I'm going to explain this later on, leavens the whole lump. You are one loaf, is his point. You are one single loaf. In the um, US, I don't know if we've got it yet, it's called monkey loaf. Monkey bread? Monkey loaf? Does anybody know what that is? Yeah. <laughs> Those of you who have traveled will probably know. And that's, if I have it correctly, it's different rolls or loaves that, that, that rise together and it's one big loaf that's made up of different loaves. That's not the word that Paul uses here. He's not saying that you are monkey loaf and so you can break off the one and then you still have individual loaves. He says, no, you are one lump. Um, what is the closest that we have? Raisin bread. Roast the cook. Most, I have no idea what that is. Most polikis. You get the point. It's one entire lump. Not individual lumps that make up the lump. So personal freedom does not apply to a lump. Because it's one. It's one bread. Personal freedom does not trump biblical conformity to the community. I know that sounds very social, but I'm talking about the community of the saints. 
personal purity matters to the greater community. So what you do in your personal life matters to all of us here. Why? Because we ought to hold one another accountable for how we live. I'm glad she agrees. So you cannot have both the elevation of personal freedom and conformity to a community. Think about that. You cannot have a person saying, I want personal freedom, I want personal freedom, and then live in community with others. It does not work. So don't buy the lie of this world that says, oh, no, no, we, we, we celebrate individuality. We, we celebrate women's rights over their own bodies. We celebrate people to choose their own thing. But then if you choose anything other, they don't celebrate that. One view will win. And in society, it is the majority view that must be complied with. Your personal freedom matters little as long as you comply with the sits im Leben, the context of the spirit, the situation of life or the spirit of the age. No one has individual rights not in the church of jesus christ you are bought with a price you've given up that desire to live for yourself and you've submitted your will to the authority and the lordship of jesus christ and he is the reigning lord of all of your life so you don't get to choose how you want to live. You are obligated to live in accordance with his law. Let me give you a biblical illustration. Remember Joshua chapter 7. Those of you Old Testament scholars. What happened in Joshua chapter 7? Also known as the sin of Achan or Achan. Remember what he did? Israel goes out to war. What does he do? He steals. Some goal, I believe. Comes back and Israel can't win. They can't win the, the battle against AI. And so they are called together and um, Joshua says to them, we need to weed out the, the, the problem. One, one of you have sinned. Listen to Joshua in Joshua 9, 7 verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, I just love how he words this. My son, give glory to Yahweh God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Praise God and tell me the truth. That's how you counsel parents. Praise the Lord now. Let me hear how you have lied and stolen and cheated. Notice what Achan says. Truly, I have sinned against Yahweh, God of Israel. And this is what I did. What does he acknowledge? The God who is over the community. He understood that his sin was in the community, and it impacted the community, but it was against whom? 
God. See, sin affected everyone in that situation. It was an individual choice. And they didn't get to, to say, oh, what? we affirm your choice to be a thief. We, 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 um, we will allow you to identify yourself as a thief. No. Your private sin has been committed against the community and before God. They had to keep him accountable for what he has done. Why? Here's the point that God makes. Individual sin affects the entire community. Paul makes the exact same point in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The way you live personally affects the greater community of the saints. Your personal lives matter to the saved community. So secondly, and secondly, the church must act against immoral behavior. God expects us to respond in a way that honors Him and not that is comfortable for the sinner. Our first and primary responsibility is to honor the Lord and if He requires purity, what should we require? Purity. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather mourn? Should you not grieve over the sin? Let him who has done this be removed from you. Two things. The removal is a loving and a preservative. Secondly, the removal implies accountability before all. So I'm not going to get back to those points, but I will illustrate it in the rest of the sermon. It's a loving and preservative act. And it implies accountability to the greater community of saints. The removal of this brother demonstrates that, first of all, we love the Lord and we want to honor him and we love the community. Therefore, we, will, we won't allow this sin to permeate the community. That is the, the church. If this man then is a believer, then the most loving thing to do after he's been point, after the correction has been pointed out is to remove him from the church. Now that is hurtful to sensitive ears. Today, I don't know if you know about this, but they are trying to remove books that were quote-unquote offensive in the past. I mean, Tom Sawyer. Goodness gracious, um, what is that one, um, the kiddies book? They... Dr. Seuss is offensive to sensitive ears. No. So this may be hard for some of you who have been conditioned to have sensitive ears. If a man or woman disregards the requirement of God and perpetually wants to live in that sin... Our responsibility is to cut him off. How's that loving? How, how does that achieve anything? Why don't you just affirm him in his sin? No. The cutting off demonstrates the seriousness of the sin, both before God and to the community. 
So he understands that he's not only doing wrong to another person, but doing wrong in the community and before God. He needs to understand the weight of his sin, and therefore excommunication is a way to demonstrate the seriousness of the offense. What is meant by this word, remove him, at the end of verse 2? It's, it's, a, it's a pregnant word, and I, I should be careful in using the word pregnant in this church. <laughs> but it is a pregnant word, and I'm glad that the Lord has given us such a fruitful church. Yes, I agree. It can mean anything from the raising up of a ship's anchor to lift up somebody from a certain position and placing him in another position. It's just a wide array of meaning. But the idea here has more behind it the sense of cutting off, like a split, removal from. In fact, it is given in, um, uh, in the illustration, or I should say in the explanation of verse 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan and the sensitive hearers are going, what? Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Wow. That's some hard words. Why? so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Hand him over to the devil. The church belongs to whom? Jesus Christ. So it's the realm of God where his kingdom laws, his kingdom reigns are being expressed and are being experienced in a small or a, a local area. Until the kingdom comes. But when you are outside the governance or the protection of the church. What are you under then? The realm of the devil. So Paul makes a difference or a separation between the world. The governance of Satan and the church. So your excommunication from the church. The expelling from the church places you where? Under the Rule and authority of the devil. That's what he's saying. You get rid of him and you hand him over to the realm of Satan and to the authority of Satan and to be killed or removed by the devil. That is, that his flesh will be destroyed and his soul will be saved. Wow. Paul, that is some harsh words. It is better for him to die and his soul be saved than for him to be kept in church and destroy the church from the inside out. This means excluding him from the life of the church. This sounds unloving. And you're going to be tempted to think that we are promoting hate in this church. In fact, if this sermon goes onto social media, it will probably be flagged. And if I haven't been flagged before, that doesn't concern me. It does seem harsh, but it's an act to preserve the purity of the church. 
that is far more important than that person's individual privilege as a saint, meaning his choice to sin. Now notice the potentiality in um, verse 5 at the end, in the purpose clause. So that his spirit may possibly, that's the idea, may be, it's potential, be saved. Why does he say it that way? Why does he not say so that his soul will be saved in the day of the Lord? Because we don't know if he's a believer. Excommunication presumes that you belong to the church, but at this stage, we don't know if you are a believer because you are acting like an unbeliever and therefore we need to separate you and place you with the unbelievers. That's a loving act to the community of the saints, but also to that sinner, or at least the believer who thinks he's a believer. By removing him, we make him accountable. Secondly, if they don't remove him, they show approval of his immoral behavior. That's exactly what this church did. That is exactly what Paul chastises them for doing wrong. How does this relate to us? We live in a world that wants us to commend, approve, and affirm sinful behavior. For instance, when Susan was born, Samuel, they want us to affirm Susan by calling Susan Samuel. That should not happen in the church of Jesus Christ. If Susan was born Susan, and we know that Susan was Susan because Susan was raised in the church, or we knew her from outside the church when she came into the church, and she suddenly Samuel, no. We preserve the purity. Does that mean we have to kick them out? Yes, it does. Why? Because that's immoral. It goes against the grain of what God requires for a man and a woman. You do not affirm the sin of the sinner. When we say they, them, you are affirming that person's sin. You may not agree with it, but you are affirming it when the church allows such people to come and be part of the church community. We not only affirm it, but we confirm them in their sin when we do not excommunicate them. The church must respond to immorality. Why? Because thirdly, immorality must be removed because it is infectious by nature. It affects the greater community of the saints. You can see this in verse 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really uh, as you really are unleavened. And take note that he's not talking about cutting off the individual part of the leaven, but he's saying get rid of the entire problem so that you would be an entirely new lump. And there's a misunderstanding of what Paul is speaking about here. Leaven was not pure yeast. 
when we hear leaven, we think of the influence of yeast upon uh, a piece of loaf or bread or dough. But leaven related to old dough that began to ferment. And I'm sure most women would know what this is. But us men, uh, yeah, I think we need some cooking lessons. The older uh, fermented dough was the, had the greater possibility of causing problems to the other dough in the room because it spreads and it contaminates. When Paul is saying that the offending brother is leavened to the lump, he's saying that that little piece, that individual, has caused a corruption to what? The entire church. It's not just him that is a problem. The entire church that has accepted him and has confirmed him in his sin has been permeated and infected by that sin. When immoral sin is left unchecked, it will affect the entire community. This is why you must cut it out. In ancient time, yeast was very rare, and um, the only alternative to produce a kind of a yeast was to let the leaven, the old, the the um, uh, dough, become old, and it produces this leaven, which begins to, uh, which is the result of the fermentation. So it's, he's not talking about a specific part. He's talking about the entire lump as a being compromised. The entire church has become poisonous, has become poisoned, has become infiltrated or infected. Immoral sin within a church spreads like an infectious disease. And so Paul says, get rid of the entire lump. Now, he's not saying get rid of the entire church. The problem is the fermented loaf. So get rid of him. Cleanse it out. Replace it with a new batch. What Paul is talking about here is the preservation of of the church don't allow it to spread i think that is very basic it's very logical to understand but there are some who say well you know what this was not actually paul's original meaning this was added somehow by somebody later on they come up with all kinds of ideas and interestingly it is this uh, section and also um where Paul says that I do not allow a woman to speak in church. So suddenly that is not written by Paul. So that's the most convenient way to get rid of it. Just say, yeah, no, it wasn't actually part of Paul's uh, uh, um, desire. But notice what he says in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. So there's a letter that we don't have, and he expresses to them previously. And now he reaffirms it to them. It's not saying that disassociate from sinners in the world. And that's not the, whole, the point. The point is if there are those in the church who are living an immoral life, cut them out. 
Get rid of them. Look back at verse 7. Cleanse out the leaven, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. In other words, you are pure. Start acting like a pure church. Deal with the sin. When we compromise on immorality, we leave the church open to an avalanche of sinful behavior. Unchecked immoral sin in a church will result in a weak, immature, and spiritually unhealthy church. That's why it is protective. That is why it is loving to the community to deal with serious sin such as this. Notice in, I'm going to read uh, verse 10, 9 and 10 together, but I'm just going to read verse 10. Uh, Paul repeats the idea. Not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. So he's expanding the idea of immorality. It's not just sexual sin. It is everything that is immoral. He says, I'm not saying that you should separate it from them. Since then you would need to go out of the world. Then you need to be separated from the world. Meaning the rapture should take place. Let us then be removed. But that's not the point. Verse 11. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone that bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Wow. Expel this person. Purge him, he says in verse 13, the evil person. From among you. Why does he speak so harshly against this person? Because he's acting like an unbeliever. And so he says, get rid of them. He doesn't want to submit to the authority of scripture. Get rid of him. Paul is clear that dealing with immorality in the church includes removing unrepentant believers who refuse to walk away from that sin. They must be expelled. For this reason, it is loving and protective for the church to deal with serious sin. There are other passages which we don't have time to look at. Maybe we can get to it on Wednesday. But there are other passages where Paul speaks about dealing with visible known sin. People who call dis cause dissension. He says you don't put up with them. People who live immoral lives in 1 Timothy chapter 4, you don't put up with them. You put them out. You disassociate from them. Why? Because it will infect the greater community. When a pastor or an elder lives in sin in chapter 5, I believe, is it chapter 5, verse 17 through to 20, he says you make it known publicly. Deal with it. Why? Because sin rubs off. If we allow the ABC, uh, what my wife calls it, the, the, LG, the 2S LGBTQ plus QII now, if we allow them to infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ, that immoral lives, li lifestyle will spread to other immoral um, applications in the church. 
Notice how Paul makes it much wider than just the sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler. Paul is saying that any kind of immoral behavior must be dealt with. And if you don't deal with it, it will infect your church. So don't think in a limited way that it just deals with a situation like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because what's the chances that this will happen in our church? Probably very rare. But there are those who are immorally pursuing greed. It's consumed their life. Paul says deal with that because that kind of person will cause problems in your church. What's the point? When we don't deal with this kind of sin, immoral sin, we undermine scripture and we expose the church. That is why it is important. Take notice that Paul says, don't even eat with him at the end of verse 11. Not even to eat with such a one. There are those who consider themselves to be the love police of the church. When a person gets excommunicated, the love police will run after them and say, you know what, I didn't agree with what that church did. I just want to love you back to Jesus. Yeah. Read Galatians chapter 6. The pride of that person will cause him to fall into the same sin of the person that's been excommunicated. When you think you know better than God, You've elevated yourself to the position of God. And the love police are good at doing that. They're always checking people who check other saints. You can't be so harsh on people. You know what the greatest challenge to gospel ministry is today? It is Christians, quote-unquote, within quotation marks, Christians who challenge gospel preachers publicly or in the church concerning the gospel that they preach because it is offensive to society. That is the greatest challenge. See, the world will either ignore it, reject it, just or walk on. They don't care. But Christians are highly offended by the gospel. I wonder why. A church that refuses to deal with immorality is not only caught in compromise, but inviting more immorality. This is why it is important for us as a church to be serious about dealing with sin. So firstly, a church must recognize that personal immorality will affect the greater community. The church must act, secondly, against such immorality, and then the church must remove the, immo- uh, the immorality before it spreads. Then lastly, the church must understand why it must act. Look at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are. For Christ, this is the theological foundation for excommunication, Christ our Passover, uh, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Wow. What a connection. And in order for you to understand that what happened 
on the Exodus, the night of the Exodus. Well, they, they had the Passover lamb, right? What was part of that? They had to remove all the what? Leaven. And, and that removal of the leaven is illustrative of the separation that is required from God's people because of the sacrifice that Christ will do or make for His church. So what Paul is doing back is looking at a historical event and saying, just like that event, think of what Christ did for you. He removed us from impurity. That's what he did. He took us from the world of sin, from the world of immorality, and separated us. He created a new lump that is pure. Why then would you court immorality? The theological foundation is the gospel. This is why we must insist on purity within the church of Jesus Christ, because he died for a pure bride. Not for a convenient church that is open doors to all kinds of immorality. That is inviting sin and a disregard for the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ was sacrificed for the purity of the bride. So Paul says, get it right. Because it speaks of the gospel. The point is that the Christian community is not to intermingle or have close relationships with those who practice such serious sin. How did the Corinthian church get here? They courted the culture. The Corinthian church was so Corinthian-sized, is it Corinthianized or sized? Probably nized. They were so Corinthianized that they lived like the culture. Their thinking was through culture. Their actions was culture in the church. And so Paul in this book deals with a wide variety of influences with regards to how the women conducted themselves in society, the, the, the covering of the head, the immorality that took place at the temple sacrifices, the eating of the food that related to that. All of that Paul has to deal with because they were influenced by their culture. When a church courts culture, the result is a compromise in morality. We think that we are being sensitive to culture by allowing people who have different views on, on morality or different views on what a man and a woman is. We are being loving when we allow them to come and become members of the church. I'm not talking about visitors who come and who are quote-unquote seekers, who are looking for a church. They are welcome to come, but they are not welcome to stay if they are going to remain in that position. We cannot compromise on the purity that God requires of His church. Now, let me meddle. What about social justice? Where's our conviction on that? That is a worldly view that is invading the church of Jesus Christ. What about wokery? Wokeness. I, I call it wokery because it's fakery. Do we demand that people of a fairer skin apologize for things that they did not do? When a church has gotten that far, it has compromised to culture. It has opened its door to immorality within the church. 
What about BLM? Supporting a anti-God, anti-Christian movement because we like what they are standing for. You don't really know what they are standing for. That's why you like what they are standing for. They want to break down homes, the, the, the essential element of a church, of a, of a home, which is husband, father, and children. They want to, in fact, a part of their philosophy is having trans rights for all people. Hang on. BLM, how does it equal trans rights? It doesn't, because it's an ideology that buys into wokeness that is a manipulation or a, a tactic to manipulate us to buy into the ideology. Churches cannot compromise on such immoral views. We need to stand our ground. Why? Chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Think about this. If the unrighteous are starting to invade the church of Jesus Christ, what then has become of the church? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the only place where God is demonstrating his righteous reign as the king is in the church. It's not yet global. That will come. The local expression of his kingship is seen in his sovereign rule over the lives of his people. Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor uh, adulteresses, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It cannot be clearer than that. These are not Christians if they are enslaved to that sin and persist that this is what God has made them to be. That they are those who are absolutely confused and are um, born, uh, not born that way, but born in a context that influences their thinking. But notice what Paul says in verse 11, and such were some of you. That is indicative of a person that is an unbeliever. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Amen. This is indicative of a past life, but now there is a new life in Christ that is totally distinct from this world. We do not live by the standards, we do not compromise to the standards, and we will not bow to the standards of this world. Because we are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel changes not only our minds and our hearts, but also our attitude and our actions. And so we must, as a church, insist on a pure life. I'm not saying perfect life, because none of us can be perfect, but insist on a moral life. So, let me point out one thing and we'll end on there. What do we do if a person repents? We've looked at the negative. Let me show you the positive. Chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, verse 7. Now, if a person, verse 5, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but, uh, but in some measure... 
not to put it uh, too severely to all of you. Remember what I was saying in the first point, that it's the entire community that is affected? This is what Paul is talking about. The sin is the gains and infects and uh, uh, affects the entire community. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. It's the most loving thing you can do is to excommunicate him. That punishment is enough. So, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or may or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow he goes on to say that he needs to be forgiven if he's repented of his sin so if a person comes in and they've repented of that sin and they are still living like sam even though they are susan we need to point them out to live like susan because they are susan you are you following me, right and if they follow Susan, we can forgive them because they are showing the fruits of repentance. But if Susan remains as Sam, Samuel, then Susan must experience the cold hand of fellowship because Susan is not repentant. But if she does repent and lives the way that God has created her, then you love them and accept them as if they have never sinned. I have so much more to say, but I'm going to end on that. Why is this important? Because church membership implies that we are invested to the degree that we care about how each and every individual person lives. Our church needs to be distinct and not be so superficial in how we care for one another. When you ask how are you doing, really mean how are you doing? And probe that question. How's your eyes? <laughs> that just happens because I've been looking this way. How's the back? How can I help? How can I pray for you? How's the sin that you are dealing with? How are you doing with that? How can I help you in that? Do you need accountability? Who's your accountability partner? Probe instead of just doing the superficial thing. How are you fine? Goodbye. God loves you. God bless you. Be invested. The blessing of church membership is that God has provided a community of saints that ought to be loving and invested in each other's lives. And I hope that we are going to be different. I hope that we set a trajectory of what church life should look like moving forward. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful to you as you have been kind and gracious and patient to us in a variety of different ways. We acknowledge that we've not always been faithful and committed in our personal walk and we've not understood the responsibility of church life as it relates to our own personal lives. Forgive us for the ignorance, but also forgive us for the rejection of the standard that you have in your word. Help us to obey. Grant us the conviction to live in accordance with the truth and to reject the influence of the world. Help us to love you and to love your people sincerely, deeply, caring for one another in the same way that we do for ourselves. Change our interpersonal relationships, Lord that we may honor you in the way that we care for the saints. We give thanks to you and we pray for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask that we...